Let's pray together again. Our Father, it is really it is really a, a, an awesome privilege to now have your word given to us freely, to be able to investigate it, to have the power and presence of the Holy Spirit among us and in us, to guide us into truth. Your word is truth. I pray, O oh God, that you would give us insight and wisdom. May you open up the eyes of our heart that we might see your truth and that it might take root in our lives, O oh God, that we might not sin against you. So thank you for this time together and I pray now, Lord, that you would uh, grant us this incredible grace of your message to us and for us to be willingly able to receive it. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, for, for the past, I don't know, 35 or so plus years, I've kind of devoted myself to about two main things feeding people the truth, not a truth, not your truth, not my truth, the truth, and helping people out of their sinful messes, sinful messes that are usually surrounded by untruth and lies. And oh yeah, there's a little bit of administration and ministry planning and all of that sprinkled in. But in those 35 plus years, in these 35 plus years, I've learned a lot about the difference between truth and lies. I've learned that truth is usually straightforward and simple. Lies are sneaky, deceptive, circuitous, inconsistent, there is a conspiracy that goes around sin, that gathers around sin. But in truth, there's a simplicity. We've constructed new descriptions of untruth recently. New words like, you're being gaslighted. You know what that means? That somebody's creating an alternative reality to cause what is actual reality to be in question or rejected. So that sometimes we think we're losing our mind. Am I losing my mind? No, you're probably not losing your mind. You're probably being gaslighted. We, we also, in, in the courts, we, we have phrases like the ring of truth. You've probably heard that over against the stench of lies or the smell. Lies are smelly. You know, we, we use phrases with each other like, that doesn't pass the smell test, right? You've used that kind of thing. That just, some, you know, something, it just doesn't pass the smell test versus something that has the ring of truth. Sin requires a setup, requires props, requires 
circuitous turns, it requires theater. Truth is straightforward. Jesus is the truth. Amen? Over against Satan, the serpent, who is crafty, cunning. Remember what it says at the very front of the book, our book? He was more crafty and cunning than all the other creatures. By the way, I just pause for a moment and remind all of us that the enemy is a creature. He's a creature, right? Only God is God and dominant over all of creation. So we have nothing to fear. The nations of this world are for the most part under the spell of the father of lies. Craftiness and cunning and deceptive. Jesus reminded those in opposition to him of the day that you belong to your father, his father of lies. The vast majority of our world is dominated by crafty and cunning and theater and deceitfulness because it follows the father, their father, and he is the father of lies. Blinded to their theater at the same time as they themselves continue to spin their theatrical webs. History is splashed with the blood of, of the powerless innocents who encounter state-sponsored tyranny. Ever feel like you're being played? In order to entrench power and increase wealth, the powerful throughout history have taken advantage of the powerless. Taken advantage of the weak. And so we say to each other, well, just take them to court. Take the powerful to court. Deal with it legally. And then to our horror, we watch as the powerful make their own laws so that what they want to do to the powerless becomes legal. Because you can't just seize power. Well, you can, but there'll be a messy uprising. You can conspire to take power, though, bit by bit, law by law, Bill C. whatever. You put the number behind it. The powerful are able then to justify their actions legally and conscript other officials who are threatened with the removal of their credentials if they don't go along. Or are committing professional suicide to speak out against what is now lawful, tyrannical state control. But I'm talking about a guy in the Bible. You thought I was talking about something else. I'm talking about a guy by the name of Naboth. 
1 Kings 21. It appears that this guy Naboth, whose name is repeated about 150 times in the chapter, it's unbelievable, because he is the center of God's affection. I want you to keep that in mind when we read the text. He's an upstanding and otherwise loyal to the king guy. He's a good citizen who became an enemy of the state. Why? (laughs) Because he held land that the king coveted. He's a good and an honest man, a man of truth. But he got into conflict with a cunning and crafty, sinful leadership and lost his life along with his sons. Beloved, we all need to get better at distinguishing truth from lies. If there's one thing that I think I've learned in the last few months, it's we need to get better at telling the difference between truth and lies. We need to recognize the truth and that it doesn't need theatrical props. We need to recognize that lies require a setup. And the props of choice are two for setting up sin. The flesh and temptation toward the flesh and manufacturing fear. Those two things are how the enemy operates. Very simple, but yet it beats and tricks us every time. Flesh and fear. Flesh and fear. Fear and flesh. That's it. That's the arsenal of the enemy's master plan. And that's what's happening in 1 Kings 21. It's how state-sponsored cannibalism happens. It's It's how people abuse power. It's how state tyranny takes effect. And and I want to point out to you and show you in the text what God sees. And I want to show you also some takeaway things for you in terms of the anatomy of abuse and power. It's not new. Talk to Ukrainian people who live through a Marxist collectivist takeover in the middle 30s or Europe in the Mein Kampf of Hitler and his power grab or Mao Zedong in the late 40s and early 50s and the complete social re-engineering of China. The blueprint's the same. You just have to insert a different name, that's all. We're going to insert the name Ahab, King Ahab who probably would have been called back then King Akab. But you know it as Ahab, so I'll try to just stay with the party line. Let's look at the text. And pay attention how many times Naboth's name is used. 1 Kings 21, sometime later there was an incident If there was ever an understated beginning, that's it. This is quite an incident involving a vineyard belonging to Naboth, the Jezreelite. The vineyard was in Jezreel, close to the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. 
Ahab said to Naboth, by the way, called king of Samaria, but he is the king of Israel, but, but the place was Samaria. Let me have your vineyard to use for a vegetable garden since it is close to my palace. In exchange, I will give you a better vineyard or if you prefer, I will pay you whatever it is worth. But Naboth replied, the Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. So Ahab went home sullen and angry because Naboth the Jezreelite had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. He lay on his bed sulking and refused to eat. <clears throat> his wife Jezebel came in and asked him, why are you so sullen? Why won't you eat? He answered her, because I said to Naboth the Jezreelite, sell me your vineyard, or if you prefer, I will give you another vineyard in its place. But he said, I will not give you my vineyard. Jezebel, his wife, said, is this how you act as king over Israel? Get up and eat. Cheer up. I'll get you the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. What a Jezebel she was. So she wrote letters <clears throat> in Ahab's name, placed his seal on them, and sent them to the elders, sent them to the elders and nobles who lived in Naboth's city with them, with him. In those letters she wrote, proclaim a day of fasting and seat Naboth in a prominent place among the people, but seat two scoundrels opposite him and have them testify that he has cursed both God and the king. Then take him out and stone him to death. So the elders and nobles who lived in Naboth's city did as Jezebel directed in the letters she had written to them. They proclaimed a fast and seated Naboth in a prominent place among the people. Then two scoundrels came and sat opposite him and brought charges <clears throat> against Naboth before the people, saying, Naboth has cursed both God and the king. So they took him outside the city and stoned him to death. Then he sent word to Jezebel. Then they sent word, Naboth has been stoned and is dead. As soon as Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned to death, she said to Ahab, get up and take possession of the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite, that he refused to sell you. He's no longer alive, but dead. When Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, he got up and went down to take possession of Naboth's vineyard. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, the prophet. Go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, who rules in Samaria, He's now in Naboth's vineyard where he has gone to take possession of it. Say to him, this is what the Lord says. Have you not murdered a man and seized his property? Then say to him, this is what the Lord says. In the place where dogs licked up Naboth's blood, dogs will lick up your blood. Yes, yours, Ahab said to Elijah. So you have found me, my enemy. I have found you, he answered, because you have sold yourself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord. I'm going to bring disaster on you. I will consume your descendants and cut off from Ahab every last male in Israel, slave or free. I will make your house like that of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, and that of Baasha, son of Ahijah, because you have provoked me to anger and have caused Israel to sin. And also concerning Jezebel, the Lord says, dogs will devour Jezebel by the wall of Jezreel. 
Dogs will eat those belonging to Ahab who die in the city, and the birds of the air will feed on those who die in the country. There was never a man like Ahab who sold himself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord, urged on by Jezebel, his wife. He behaved in the vilest manner by going after idols. Like the Amorites, the Lord drove out before Israel. When Ahab heard these words, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth, and fasted. He lay in sackcloth and went around meekly. Then the Lord, word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite. Have you noticed how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself, I will not bring this disaster in his day, but I will bring it on his house in the days of his son. This is the word of God. Notice the sin scorecard in this story. Starts out with coveting. You know, we're warned in Genesis, sin is crouching at your door. It's waiting to pounce on you. Starts with coveting. It moves to bearing false witness or lying. It moves then to murder and theft and just generally disobeying the word of God. If you aren't arrested spiritually at the early stages of disregarding God's word, there's no imagining the heinous sin you are capable of. Let me give you five insights on this text this morning. The first is this. Beware when you possess something the state wants. You might be saying this morning, I don't have anything the state wants. You have something the state wants. The state wants control. It always wants control. that's That's what states want. They want control of everything because leading is easier when you have total control. And when the state goes rogue, it's about power, about control, about money. You know, a little backdrop or a little understanding of the situation here. Ahab is the son of Omri, who was the sixth king of Israel. The sixth king of Israel after the breakup of the people of God, the people of Israel. If you remember, Solomon's son, Rehoboam, was a unwise king, and there was a split. Ten tribes went, stayed in the north, two tribes went south. So you now have the people split into the people of Israel and the people of Judah. So you have kings of Israel and kings of Judah. And after that, there was a sequence of kings that were evil and wicked in Israel. And Omri, the Omri dynasty, established the capital of Israel in Samaria. Now, Samaria didn't exist until Omri made it exist. It was a a hill that Omri the king bought from another guy by the name of Sharom, or Samaria. His name actually was Samaria. That's why it was named that way. It's a, today, it's, it's, a, it's a little um, ancient village called Sebastia in Israel. And, and basically, there's nothing much more there than a, a, a few people and ancient ruins. The ancient uh, ruins of the Omri palace and the Ahab dynasty. 
But what's interesting and important to understand here is that they, they established uh, unthinkable wickedness before God. They, they, they set up, uh, Ahab set up a temple to worship Baal with, among the people of God. And so you had this counter-religion, the state religion was the religion of Baal, worshiping the god Baal. His symbol was a bull. You know this, you've heard this before. So where does Jezreel come in? Well, Jezreel is a, is a place, you know, about 15 minutes away from, from Samaria, this, the village or the town of Samaria where now was the capital of Israel. And it was, the, it was normal for them to expand their regional influence and impact. And, and in Jezreel, there was a palace built. It was probably the summer residence of Ahab and Jezebel. And what was normal for kings of the ancient Near East was to expand their holdings so that the palace would increasingly grow in size so that if there would be any would-be invaders or whatever, they would see the size of the palace of the king that was in charge and say, this guy means business, we're not going to mess with him. It was, it was all smoke and mirrors mostly, but it worked. And so if you had adjacent land to the palace, it was prime target property for the king who would want to expand his holdings and look bigger. It just so happened that Naboth had this plot of land that was adjacent to a palace that was built in Jezreel, the summer residence of King Ahab. That's the backdrop. So he had a possession that the king wanted. And the battle for every overseer is resisting the intoxication of control and power because you have it and you want more. And there's only two things that stand in the way of state control. The one is personal freedom and the other is a conflicting worldview. And Naboth had both of those. He had the freedom of land ownership and rights and he himself was a worshiper of the living God, not a Baal worshiper, which was the religion of the state. Oh, it was supposed to be, Israel was supposed to be a, a state that, that worshiped the living God, but in fact, was not. And so this freedom, of course, that Naboth had was in the way of control. His conflicting worldview and beliefs were in the way of the belief system of the state. So he had a possession that the state wanted. Secondly, there's further danger when, in fact, your religious convictions clash with current government policy. Verses 3 to 7 help us to understand this. It begins, if you notice here, it begins with a, a gentle request to voluntarily give up his land. Hey, Naboth, God loves you and I have a wonderful plan for your life. It's this, sell me your land. I'll give you a good price for it. In fact, I'll trade you for, for a better piece of land. And, and Naboth, it's kind of your patriotic duty to go along with the state. 
it would be a really good thing for you to do this. So some of your land. And so we're looking at this and saying, well, how unreasonable is Naboth? I mean, he was offered, he was offered good money. He was offered at least what it was worth. Whatever, he, whatever Naboth said it was worth is, is what he'd get. And, and, and I'll give you a better vineyard. How unreasonable for him not to give it to the king. He was just, he's just an obstinate, disloyal, disrespectful, unpatriotic guy, right? Wrong. He's a man of convictions. You're saying, well, what, what's the deal here? He says, the Lord forbid, verse 3, that I should give you the inheritance of my father's. Well, can't your inheritance be somewhere else? No, it can't. And here's why. In Leviticus chapter 25, the law, sets, uh, the law of property rights is set out and property ownership is set out in Leviticus. And here's the deal. Verse 23 of Leviticus 25, the land must not be sold permanently because the land is mine, says the living God. Now here's what happened. If you remember back in Genesis when God called Abraham and said, uh, you know, I'm going to make a great people of you, I'm going to show you a land and all of that, and he was going to take him to a land, but he says to him, I can't take you to the land because the sin of the Amorites is not yet full. And so for 400 years, that land was not available to God's people. The land of Canaan was not available to God's people because God patiently gave the, the holders of that land opportunity to turn to the living God. 400 years of patience. And finally, God extracted them from the land because if you understand, if you read in the book of Acts, you'll find out that God distributes people wherever they are in the world at his bidding. Newsflash, this is my father's world, okay? Like all of the real estate on this globe belongs to the living God. Do we understand that? And all of the human beings who occupy the globe are tenants of the of the um, property owned by God. You think you own your land, you do not own your land. God owns your land. And so Naboth is recognizing this, the law. Now, if you, if you uh, became poor, you had a chunk of land which was granted to you by the Lord, you had a chunk of land and that land was for your livelihood and you became poor, you could sell that land, if you read here further, you can sell that land, but a kinsman redeemer, one of your family members, had to purchase it so that it stayed in the family with the idea that when you got back up on your feet, the kinsman redeemer, your family member, would give you would sell you back your land. You could give them back the money they gave you and you got your land back. Or if there was no kinsman redeemer and you had to sell your land off to just feed your family, then at, with, on the 50th year, called the year of Jubilee, all land was returned to the original owner. Or in this case, like the original tenant because God's the owner. 
And so there's all kinds of weird legal gyrations going on in Israel in these days with leases and 50 years and all of that because they work their way around this truth so that everybody in their lifetime would have the opportunity to redeem their land and live in it and, re and have the land returned to them. So here's the, here's the application for us to understand that, that Naboth wasn't being obstinate or disloyal or disrespectful or unpatriotic. He was being a man of convictions of God's word. He couldn't sell the land. He's, he's literally saying to King Ahab, do you, do you have no idea what squeeze you're putting me in? Whether I obey the king of the land or obey the king of kings, this is the squeeze you've put me in. And you ever felt like you're in that squeeze? Anybody lately felt like you're in that squeeze? I obey the state or I obey the Lord? You, you put me, you've put, state, you've put me in a terrible position. Not only did he have personal rights to this land, but he had a responsibility as a steward of this land given to him by God that did not permit him to sell it to the king. Now, let me just give you a sidebar on this. God owns all the land. Our bodies are God's land. Does the Holy Spirit not indwell us? Are we not the temple of the living God? Do you not realize the application? And, and Christ is our year of jubilee. Do you not realize the symbolism here? Your body is owned by God. It's God's land. I'll allow you to make the applications to that. So as we follow along in this case, he's can't, he can't give the land away. So Ahab goes and sulks. His wife finds him sulking and pathetic because she is a piece of work. She basically like undresses him with her like, this is how you act as king? You lay in a bed, some pathetic landowner beside you, you can't get his vineyard. What kind of a pathetic king are you? Get up and do what kings do. Take control of the state. Forget it. I'll take care of it for you. Because you don't have the internal uh, fortitude to take care of it. So here's what she did. Follow along. Here's what wicked governments always do. It's the Jezebel factor. Wicked governments find ways to scapegoat their evil and justify their actions. Because see, crisis forces action and legitimizes desires, desired change. I want land, and there's one way to get it. I'm gonna spark a crisis. And that crisis will give me the land. Watch how she does it. See if you haven't seen this before. It's how abusive governments socially engineer what they want. What's the first thing she does? She sends a letter, notice in verse eight, she sends a letter and calls, in verse nine, and calls the elders to proclaim a day of fasting. Now a day of fasting would be proclaimed for, uh, 
any number of reasons, but in particular, a sudden proclamation from the palace for a day of fasting would indicate that there's some sort of threat or danger on the city. So the first thing she does is she causes fear, putting Jezreel under, the town of Jezreel under sanctions and a citywide emergency order and a lockdown to fast. Because Jezreel is in danger. Well, what's the threat? Because you have to come up with a threat. Once you've established that there's a reason to be afraid, you have to come up with the reason to be afraid. And she writes in her letter, seat Naboth in a prominent place and have scoundrels testify against him that he's cursed both God and king. Ah, so the letter is orchestrated to create a scapegoat. That could be a person, it could be a people group, well, it could even be, um, let me think, a parasite. Create something that the government pins on someone so that now that's the threat for all that we want to do because the reason we're doing this is to get the land, remember? It's the crisis is to get the land when in fact Naboth wasn't the threat. The government was the threat. What do you do? What, what else do you have to do? Well, you have to create the illusion of this being justified. So she tells the elders and the nobles that there is justification because there's this sinner guy who's cursed God and the king, in spite of the fact that they have to bribe people to say that. So she, her letter politicizes all the officials into the idea that there's a clear and present danger which is fabricated and they know it's fabricated and the orders are passed down the chain of, of sycophants who are willing to abide by anything she says because what do tyrannical governments do? They remove the independence of their officials so that they have to follow through with anything that the tyrant says. If you remove the independence of the legal system and you remove the independence of the scientific system and you remove the independence of the medical system and you remove the independence of the economic system and you remove the independence of the journalism system, then anything you say as a tyrannical government has to go because all of these systems are government dependent now. If the elders and the nobles rose up against Jezebel, they lose their professional credentials. They lose their positions. So you make it about personal ambition and then you can tell them any lie you want and they won't whisper a word of it. But that's how you power play your officials, but what about the public? The public is still going to wonder about things. So I know you create a trial, you create a legal issue. This description of putting Naboth in a prominent place is the seating among people and then put two witnesses across from him is the picture of a trial. 
We're, we're actually going to, hey, we're not just going to accuse Naboth of this because the city of Jezreel would never buy it. He's a good guy, a noble guy. He's been patriotic his whole life. He's paid attention to the king. They're never going to buy this. All we have to do is get a couple of witnesses to come in and say, he cursed God and the king. So we make this mock trial. We put Naboth on trial. And now legally, we justify what we do. You buy some scoundrels with money and willing to sell their souls. And all of this, by the way, is to protect the people from a clear and present danger that was fabricated. The whole matter was theatrically staged to look and sound legal. And then she puts him, has him put to death. The actions appear legitimate and the actions appear justified to the masses. The masses are duped, the poles soar, Ahab's in power for 22 years because he saved Jezreel from some sure destruction. The government made its case and had to act to save us. What, what, you know, what do you expect? That's what governments are supposed to do. They're supposed to save us. So the actions were justified. But here's what nobody paid any attention to on a little bit of a sidebar. They also killed his sons. They also killed his son. 2 Kings 9.26. They also killed his... If, if, you're, if you're... Even the most intricate web has flaws in it if you look for them. Why were the sons executed? They weren't brought to trial. They didn't curse the king, curse uh, God. Why would the sons be executed? The only logical reason for executing the sons is because they would have had property rights. So you have to exterminate the sons so that you can get what you really want, which is not about a threat to Jezreel or a cursing of God or a cursing of the king but the king wanting control of property. That was it. Now, what does God think about all of this? I'm pretty sure you're horrified. Well, we find out that God sends the prophet to the very scene of the crime. Spiritual rights, by the way, are sacred to God, and violations through the exploitation of people will attract his wrath. He sends Elijah to the field, the scene of the crime. You see what happens? Go down and meet Ahab, king of Israel, who rules in Samaria. He is now in Naboth's vineyard where he has gone to take possession of it. God sees. God sees what goes on. He sends Elijah to meet Ahab at the very vineyard. And, and notice what Ahab says to him. Oh, in verse 20, so you found me, my enemy, now, why does he call Elijah his enemy? He immediately makes it personal. This is a legal problem with God, but Elijah or Ahab makes it personal. He says, the only reason you're here, prophet, is because you don't like me. You don't like anything about me. You don't like anything I ever do, you know, because Ahab is trying to convince himself that the rights of this property are him. He's already... Finally believed Jezebel's lie. Yeah, maybe, maybe Naboth did curse, curse God. Maybe Naboth did curse the king. He's convinced himself in his conscience that it's all right for him to have the land. So he says, Elijah, you're just here because you don't like me. How does Elijah respond? He says, no. 
I have found you because you have sold yourself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord. This isn't personal between you and me, Ahab. This is personal between you and the living God. You have sinned against God. God sees what you have done. There's an enduring principle, an enduring biblical principle of ruling that's laid out in Deuteronomy 17, and that is that kings are expected to protect the rights of the citizens as fellow brothers. God's vision of leadership is not so that the leaders would exploit the weak and take advantage of them and take control and take their property. No, God's vision for leadership is that you have been granted leadership to protect the rights of your people as if they are your brothers and sisters. To treat them not as someone you can exploit, but someone who is family. The the leader of a country, the leader of any, should be treating the people as if they're family to him. And let me just warn you here that engaging in the manipulation of facts, this goes for anybody, whether you're a leader or not, engaging in the manipulation of facts or functions or structures to advance or accomplish a personal agenda at the expense of people in the way of your agenda makes you an enemy of God because you too have sold yourself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord. God abhors exploitation. It's the pages of the scriptures are rife with warnings about exploiting people in a state of weakness or, or uh, um, who are opposed to, to you or who are in a, in a position different than yours. For violating these principles, there are divine consequences. And Elijah tells him what the divine consequences are going to be. It's the law of lex talionis. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth, life for life. In the same way, Ahab, as the dogs licked up the blood of Naboth because of you, the dogs will lick your blood and the blood of your wife and the blood of your sons. God is a God of justice. And these violating of rights, by the way, has resulted in Israel being driven into exile. This is the very thing that, that sent Israel into exile. So we kind of like, okay, so let's let the story lie right there. You know, for us, our sense is Ahab, yeah, he got what he deserved. And then the horror of all horrors, he repents. We're like, no, because I know what God is like. He's going to be gracious to him. Remember Jonah? Didn't want Nineveh to repent. I knew you were a gracious God. And so we read in the text that Ahab hears these words and he tears his clothes and puts sackcloth on and fast and lay in sackcloth and went around meekly. He, he actually, he was crushed. He, he, he realized the weight of the sin. I mean, his wife choreographed it. He kind of was a dupe to the whole thing. And, and he realizes this was horrible. 
His eyes were so blinded by wanting the land that he just let this sin take place. And then he realizes this sin is ghastly. And he's devastated. And, and he, he absolutely repents before the Lord. And what does God do when we repent of our sin? He forgives us. Now, of course, we don't want God to forgive other people, but we always want him to forgive us. I don't want him to forgive Ahab. That guy deserves what he, he deserves to have dogs lick his blood. I deserve, I deserve that. Humility that crushes arrogance always catches the attention of God every time. And so God relented of his discipline during the years of Ahab. However, there was no conversion to godliness and Ahab ended up just a delayed execution. Let me just give you two takeaways and we'll wrap it up. Our sinful schemes are an open book to the Lord. I don't know what kind of deal you got going on. I don't know what you have going on in your life, but God certainly does. He knows every single detail. He knows every torturous turn of craftiness and cunningness that you are about. There's nothing that surprises God or that he doesn't see. You know, you, you wonder, I mean, what if God knew what I was up to? What if God knew what I was thinking? God knows what you're thinking as if it was a book written out in full detail. Because here we have the story written out in full detail. God knew exactly what was going on. He does. And every detail that's hatched in secret is fully known and processed by God. And keep in mind, the God who's processing every wicked design that's going on in our life is a God of justice and mercy and calls upon us to walk humbly before the Lord. So whatever you think you are hiding, you are not. So you need to bring it into the light of confession, which is clearly what happened here with Ahab, and repentance, and the grace of God God will deal with you. Consequences may not be... uh, not be avoidable. But getting to God's grace before you have to face his discipline is essential. Secondly, this. There is a day of justice scheduled for all human tyranny. Nobody's getting away with anything. No one will escape. You may not see the justice of God in your lifetime, but no one's going to escape. Absent the forgiveness in Christ, those who have exploited others will spend eternity feeling the hard sting of God's just law of lex talionis. I described what that is a few minutes ago. In other words, as you have done, it will be unendingly done to you. Punishment resembles the kind and degree. That's how hell is set up. The God of justice. So turn from your sin. Turn from your scheming. To the nations of the world, this text calls out, to the leaders of the nations of this world, turn from your scheming, turn from your sin, turn from your exploiting your people for your own agendas. Live straight in the truth. Run from the theater of lies. Be wise as serpents and innocent as doves, for this is the teaching of Jesus. Father, to
To you we offer up our repentance, the recognition, Lord, that we have failed you in the same way that Ahab has failed or in like manner or in your view like manner. And Lord, today as we gathered as a church family around the Lord's table, we realize but for the mercy of God to forgive us our sins, we would be likewise sentenced to eternity of discipline, consequences. So our Father, we throw ourselves at your grace and your mercy, humbly, confessing our own sinfulness, our own scheming, our own plotting, our own exploiting, our own shading of the truth, our own shifting of the facts, our own changing functions, eliminating people who are in the way of our own personal agenda for our own controls, our own aggrandizements, oh God. We confess to you those things and thank you that you are a gracious and merciful God. So Lord, help us, help us to live in the truth. Your word is truth. Jesus is the truth. And help us to get really good at seeing lies for what they are, that we might, in fact, bring them to the light, oh God, for your great name's sake we pray, amen.